and she is amazing when it comes to the work she is doing to educate people about the true cause of breast cancer. It's not necessarily what you think. This is my first time meeting her. She's as I, I can tell she's as smart as she is beautiful, or maybe the other way around, as beautiful as she is smart. <laughs> Please welcome to the show, Dr. Christy Funk. Thank you for taking time. I know how busy you are, and this is your weekend, and it's family time, so I really appreciate it. Oh, Chef AJ, there's nowhere else I'd rather be. <laughs> we got a new puppy, and it's like pooped all over the house, and I was like, okay, take care of that. I gotta go. Bye. <laughs> what, what, what kind? I love dogs. What kind of puppy oh, did you get? The most gorgeous little blend. She's a German Shepherd, Bernese Mountain Dog. And yellow lab. She's gonna be huge. <laughs> Did you name her? Sedona. Oh, that's beautiful. Sedona, I, Arizona. I was recently interviewing somebody on the microbiome, and they're saying it's so good to have to grow up with pets. I've heard that too. So yeah, we're gonna bring on the flora here. <laughs> You're hilarious. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I've been listening to everything I can that you've done in the last week. Um, you've, yeah. you've, you've so many, so generous with your time. You've done so many podcasts. And one of the things that blew me away, which I think a lot of people don't know, is you said something to the effect of that 80 to 90% of our breast cancer is from our daily choices. And the genetics plays a relatively small role. So how much breast cancer is actually due to hereditary factors versus environmental factors? Right, that is such a great question because it blows people's minds when they find this out. The answer is a mere five to 10%. So the vast majority of our cancer risk is not an inherited gene mutation, which in and of itself is very important. And I'll touch on that in more detail. But, okay, so 5 to 10% is something like BRCA or BRCA, CHECK2, PALB2. There are about 11 that predispose you to breast cancer. And there's usually quite a bit of breast cancer in the family or at young ages. So I'll give you a list of things to be red flags and consider testing if you hit a flag or two for sure. On the opposite end of our bell curve, you have just inexplicable cancer, right? they're young, they've been vegan since birth, they've, they're totally zenned out, they're fit. It's like they blow our minds with like everything that we think is a risk factor that we can control, they've controlled it and yet, right? So there, there are definitely those stories, but as much as they may get a lot of attention, they definitely are outliers, like again, five to 10%. So we're looking at this big fat central bell curve of 80 to 90% of all breast cancer, not being from inherited genetics and not being left field, not making sense. And so what is in here? And in this bell curve, diet and nutrition, alcohol, exercise, weight, hormone replacement therapy, emotional stress, and environmental toxicities. So all of these things collect throughout our lives and collide with our DNA in different ways. And some are positive ways and some are negative ways. And that to me is the critical thing that people need to wrap their minds around. You see, if you get hit by a carcinogen, you're gonna make a malignant seed in your body, right? People have heard we all have cancer, it's true. By the time you live in this world, you've had many cancers come and go because a seed is nothing. So if you get hit by a UV ray and you get a skin cell that goes a little deranged or cigarette smoke changes a lung cell and an intact functional immune system is going to zoop in and get rid of that cell, either fix it or get rid of it. So the seed is infinitely less important than the soil into which it 
falls. So what I'm focused on and what that big bell curve that we're talking about is focused on is perfecting the soil. What kind of fertilizer are you putting into what is literally called the tumor cells microenvironment. The microenvironment is kind of a little bathtub that these cells are sitting in, right? And what's in that bathtub is either screaming out pro-cancer or anti-cancer. And it is up to you with every choice you make, every time you lift fork to mouth, every time you decide to plop on the couch instead of go for a brisk walk, every time you decide to let that stress and that anger and that lack of forgiveness get to you, you are populating that soil with things that cancer loves and requires. So this seed, you know who uh, said it was uh, Dr. Campbell in the you know greatest study on human nutrition ever published, the China study. He said that the initiating carcinogen is way less important than diet and nutrition. And what he's alluding to is the seed maker, that thing that allowed a cell to go malignant, doesn't matter as much as the soil in your body, what you're eating, what you're doing, what you're thinking. So yeah, that's that's the gist of it. You're right, the genetic thing, and I can show you specifically, I promised I would, um, that we've got here, let me just, uh, get up our, great, okay. So we're gonna have a look here at what um, what we're talking about. So we've got, let's see, what do we have? I, I'm sorry, I'm okay, not being very good time. here with my PowerPoint. Let's stop sharing, get the um, little arrow on through what I want you to see. But so if we said that five to 10% of all genetics is coming from inherited gene mutations. And I wanted you to know who is at risk for having that. So if I go to, I just wanna make sure we get, um, gosh, why is this not working? Well, it doesn't matter. Let's just go to um, slideshow. Okay, there we go. So, When we think about these inherited gene mutations, what are they? They're basically tumor suppressor genes. And if your gene, for example, BRCA is broken, now all of a sudden you can't fix that DNA when it goes awry. So you are at incredibly elevated risk to get a breast cancer. And how high is that risk for BRCA, for example, it's an up to 87% lifetime chance of breast cancer and up to 44% chance of getting ovarian cancer. So people then have choices to make. It's not, it's not, it shouldn't be frightening to find out you have a gene mutation before you have a cancer. It should be an incentive to take control of what you can to the max. And then you have options. You can do surveillance, you can do prophylactic operations, but it doesn't commit you to like, oh, I have this mutation. You're saying I have to take my breasts off and my ovaries out. You don't have to do anything you don't wanna do. But being aware of having a mutation, now all of a sudden heightens your risk to the point where I'm hoping you then embrace diet and lifestyle changes in a more dramatic way than you maybe otherwise would have. So here are your top red flags. If you think about your family tree, you want mom and dad's side, three generations above and below you. So we're talking about grandparents, great aunts and uncles, and then below you, like your children, nieces, nephews. People also often say, gosh, you know, that's on my dad's side though. Okay. I'm not sure. 
I guess I think it's because your mom has breasts and your dad doesn't, or at least in your mind, you think that way about breasts. So um, you're half your dad's DNA and his family tree matters absolutely as much as your mother's tree. So you get these cancers in your mind. And here we go. If you have two relatives with breast cancer prior to age 50 or ovarian cancer at any age, you should consider testing. If you are Ashkenazi Jewish, you get the Jewish special. You only need one relative with breast prior to age 50 or ovarian at any age. Why is that? So the general population carries BRCA mutations at one in 500, whereas just being Ashkenazi makes your risk one in 40. You layer in a cancer or two in the family and now all of a sudden that risk goes high enough to definitely wanna find out if you have a mutation. If you yourself have had breast cancer prior to menopause, or a type called triple negative prior to age 60, or if you've had two primary breast cancers, so not one and then a recurrence, but actually one in each breast or two totally different types. Any men in the tree with breast cancer, any known gene mutation in a direct bloodline relationship to you, of course you have risk. Pancreatic cancer is rare enough that if that's combined with ovarian or breast, you wanna test. And then finally, if there's just a whole lot of cancer going on, three or more relatives on the same side with breast, ovarian, pancreatic, prostate, colorectal, gastric uterine, or melanoma, you want to consider testing. The, um, the, the testing now, as uh, when that one company lost its patents, there came competition, shockingly. So it used to be a $4,500 cash pay has become $239. This we have on our website is the only FDA approved genetic test that can be mailed to your home. And you just register it, spit in a tube, send it back and broop, like a week later, you'll get um, a 30 gene panel. It's $239 and it comes with board certified genetic counseling. So if it's of interest to you to find out, but maybe you don't want your insurance to know, you can go ahead and register this kit and call yourself Wonder Woman for all we care, right? So that's, that's one option for testing. Um, I want to bring up the other stat. So if only five to 10% is inherited, then you shouldn't see, then this stat makes perfect sense and kind of proves the point. 87% of women diagnosed with breast cancer do not have a single first degree relative with breast cancer. And about 80% have no relatives. In fact, one of my favorite things to bring up to women is that you've got, um, twin studies, which are so cool, right? So these twin studies will look at um, identical twins. And if your sister, and she's all of the same DNA as you, if she has breast cancer, you would think you'd have it by Sunday, right? I mean, you're exactly the same DNA. And yet the risk is 20% for you. And if you have a sister who's, you know, five years older, so you don't have the same DNA, your risk is also 20% if she gets breast cancer. It's the same. So it's way more about environment, about the environment of your cells and of you than it is of genetics. But like I just went through, when you do have a gene mutation, uh, you wanna sit up and pay attention because it's, it's serious. So do you, do, should people do this only if they have a strong family history or just because, it doesn't sound that expensive actually this testing. Right. I think that especially if you have a uh, small family or if people died young, um, a lot of my patients are Ashkenazi Jewish and unfortunately their relatives died in the Holocaust and they can have a very small tree to look at. It's wise to test. Perhaps you're adopted or maybe you're just curious and you want to be sure you don't have one of these genes. So I do think it's quite affordable. Um, I myself tested out of curiosity without a very strong family history of cancers. 
You know, I, I host something called the Truth About Weight Loss Summit. And if you have the time, I'd love to have you be on it as an expert. But one of the things I've learned the last two years from so many of the other doctors is that being overweight predisposes you to all cancers. And that that blew my mind. How does how does it do that? And specifically for breast cancer? Right. This is a really great question as well. So when you look at being overweight or obese, well, first of all, you want you want to have a um, you want to have an idea of what that means. So what we want to do is get your BMI calculated. We've got a nice little calculator at pinklotus.com forward slash BMI, and you can just um, check your check your weight there. So if we look at this slide, which of the following preventable risk factors for breast cancer is statistically the riskiest? Drinking alcohol, being overweight, eating meat, taking hormone replacement therapy, or being sedentary, the answer is being overweight. All of these are risks. And of course, eating a lot of meat and dairy is going to lead to being overweight because of all of the saturated fat. But the statistics are that being overweight or obese lead to breast cancer. How much? A ton. So there's no question, no controversy. Obese women have 50 to 250% more breast cancer more breast cancer recurrence and more breast cancer related death than non-obese women. So the reason is, and this is an important idea behind cancer causation, 80% of all breast cancers are fed and fueled by estrogen. So the question becomes, where are you getting that estrogen if you're post-menopausal? it's in your fat cells. Everywhere you have a fat cell, you have an enzyme called aromatase and that's busy churning away all day, testosterone and androstenedione, these other precursor steroids that are coming from your adrenal gland and turning it into estrogen. So the question then becomes, do postmenopausal overweight and obese women, obviously they have more fat, but do they have higher levels of circulating estrogen? The answer is yes. And then the next question is, and does that estrogen elevate their cancer risk? So here we have a graph. If you look at your, if you think about your weight in high school and how much you've gained since then, plus or minus eight pounds is going to be our null group. So you're at normal risk relative to weight change because you and your skinny genes have done so well all these years. But if you've gained between eight and 14 pounds, you just increased your breast cancer risk solely because of the weight gain by 25%. If you've gained 14 to 29 pounds, a 60% increase. And if you've gained more than 29 pounds since high school, you've basically doubled your risk of breast cancer. So absolutely weight contributes to getting breast cancer. It's mostly estrogen driven because of the mechanism I talked about, but here's the good news. You can be a loser and become a winner. So this is a good perspective study followed 33,000 plus women and over 15 years, about 2000 breast cancers developed when they analyzed the breast cancers with weight. What they found is that there are lower rates of breast cancer in anyone who just lost weight. The sooner the better, but it's still all great reduction. So 64% less breast cancer if you lost that weight at a premenopausal age, 52% less for postmenopausal weight loss, and 34% if you just didn't gain weight. Speaking of which, not again, not to panic you, but to incentivize you, if you are a breast cancer thriver, gaining more than 5% of your initial weight during or after treatment 
irrespective of your baseline BMI, increases the risk of recurrence and reduces survival fivefold, which is a 400% increase. So you definitely want to strive for weight maintenance at the very least. That's incredible. We have a doctor watching named Dr. Woodruff who says, this is the clearest and most complete presentation on who should get screened. Thank you. Oh, good. So let's say somebody does the genetic testing and they find out they have the gene. That doesn't mean they're necessarily going to get cancer, does it? Because I know so many people that have mastectomies prophylactically and not, not judging, but is that necessary? You know, it always comes down to an individual conversation and it's very colored by a individual woman's perception of risk, right? Numbers don't mean the same thing to each person. Statistics might frighten someone and think, make them think, you know what, I'm just waiting for this bomb to blow. So take these breasts off tomorrow. Other people, their perception is colored by, well, my mom had ovarian cancer, so I'm not really worried about my breasts. Even though statistically, maybe they have a very high breast risk, their thoughts are ovarian cancers are things. So I just want my ovaries out. Many people uh, find out now because testing is people are more doctors are more knowledgeable. When I started, so I've been a doctor for 25 years, but a breast surgeon now for 20. And back 20 years ago, I was surprised by how many of my patients fit the bill like perfectly. Every box checked for should be tested, and their doctors had never thought of testing. Now you don't see that as much. In other words, testing is much more ubiquitous. And so women are finding out in their 20s and 30s that they have this risk. And when you find out young, you have all of that risk looming ahead of you, right? It's an 87% lifetime chance. But if you're 72, it's not 87% anymore. You've escaped a bunch of risk. So these young people in particular have to assume all of this risk and therefore the stress of knowing it. But, you know, maybe they have, they really want to be breastfeeding and they want to have their own children biologically, et cetera. So we create a timeline. And basically, if you have high risk, gene or not, if you're at elevated risk for breast cancer, we individualize the strategy. It usually goes something like this. We start breast uh, exams with me. I start at 18 if they have a gene mutation and they see me once or twice a year. And then we do screening ultrasound because that's quite innocent and rather effective, right? There's no radiation, there's no injections. Then we start the injections at age 25, meaning breast MRI. And at age 30, we throw in the mammogram. And so now I toggle back and forth every six months. They're usually getting like mammogram plus ultrasound six months later, MRI, depending on their risk level. Sometimes I'll space the MRIs every two or three years because there is gadolinium exposure. And that was found to pool in people's brains in cadaver studies. We don't know what it does there, but it's probably not brain fuel. So um, yeah, it becomes individualized and certain women do choose mastectomy to virtually eliminate risk across the board. Big study in 2015, prophylactic mastectomy has a 3% chance of getting breast cancer. Um, lower in my hands, but um, so 87% becomes 3%. Whew, that's quite a relief for many women. What are your thoughts on chemotherapy and radiation for very early stage breast cancer detection? That's a great question. So it turns out that biology trumps stage. 
And in 2018, the international staging system was actually altered for breast cancer to reflect exactly that, meaning the biology. We now have tests that can look at the genetics of your particular cancer, not your DNA genetics, the cancer's DNA, and it's called genomics. And basically what happens is there are a number of risk factors inherent to the biology of the cancer that are either good for it to express or bad for it to express. And depending on the particular combination within your tumor, these tests can predict the percent chance that this cancer is going to come back in a life-threatening place like lung, liver, brain, or bone in the next 10 years. So if that number's high, you can make it lower. But if that number's low, your prognosis is so great, you're, you know, you're off the hook with no harm to you. You don't need chemotherapy. So a stage one, say triple negative, uh, that means that the three receptors we look at on the surface of cancer cells are absent in a triple negative. There's no estrogen, no progesterone, and no growth factor called HER2 expressing. So now we don't have any receptors to target, so we just nuclear bomb you with chemotherapy because chemo is not smart. It's not looking for receptors. It's looking for one thing. What's moving fast around here? Oh, your hair follicles go bald. Oh, your stomach cell lining, blah, vomiting and diarrhea your nails get brittle, your nerves can get damaged. So things that move fast get annihilated, hopefully by chemo, not the, not hopefully the collateral damage, but the point is a triple negative is almost always inherently very aggressive and it moves fast. So it can disappear with chemotherapy. We call that a pathologic complete response. So oftentimes I'll have a triple negative patient if she will be stage one, she will do chemotherapy before surgery and then we operate and they don't see any cells where that cancer used to be. So stage one might need chemo uh, because of the biology, whereas a stage 2B with very low division rate, maybe only 3% of the cells are dividing, she may have three positive lymph nodes, but the tumor is so lazy, chemo is not gonna do anything to that, to improve that woman's already good survival. What she needs to do, the estrogen-driven cancers, now remember what we said, 80% of all breast cancers are fed and fueled by estrogen. So there is power here in your food to eat anti-estrogenically, is that a word? So there are certain foods that behave like the drugs that we give women to block estrogen receptors on their cancers. Specifically, those drugs are tamoxifen. That's an estrogen lookalike. So you've got that receptor sitting on the cancer cell. Estrogen feeds it, and now the cancer multiplies and divides. Well, if you take tamoxifen, that molecularly looks just like estrogen, like a key in a lock, it hits the receptor, but now there's no downstream reaction, and the cell peters out and dies. Do you know what else is a lookalike and can fit into that receptor? Genistein. What's that in? Soy. So I would like to take a moment to bust the myth on soy. Let me pull up um, real quick. I'm going to get to that slide show here about soy because this is one of those things that has gotten a bad rap. And the funny thing, okay, so when I went, this is great. When I went to write my book, I dove into nutritional science and I had to be right, right? Every single fact in my book is backed by references. It's 80 pages over 1500 papers. And I literally um, went into the literature specifically and only to prove what I had been saying for 18 years as a breast cancer surgeon was to spit that miso out of your mouth. Like, why do you need soy? You don't need it. Just substitute any other milk. Like, don't, don't have soy. Why? Because I was smart enough to know that it was a phytoestrogen, but my smart stopped there. And I thought, 
who knows? Do you think a receptor is that discriminating that it actually cares whether that estrogen-like thing is coming from your own ovary or from a soybean? I think not, so you shouldn't have it. Oops, sorry about that. So embarrassingly wrong, and I'm going to show you the data that I uncovered. We're not talking Petri dishes and mice here. We're talking soy and people and breast cancer. And I did, not only, it was more than a 180, I just spun in place because it wasn't, oh, don't have soy, you can have soy. It was, you must have soy. I actually advocate for two to three servings a day for everybody, for risk reduction. And if you have cancer, it's a potent, powerful anti-estrogen fighting for you to kill off any rogue cancer cells. So here's what I learned. The biology is what struck me. And this is where I, my thought process went wrong. There are two estrogen receptors in our bodies, alpha and beta. So alpha is the one on the cancer cells and with 1600% more affinity, the genistein and other isoflavones in soy are going to hit beta. All right, so what do we do there when we hit beta? Two fascinating things. First, we shut alpha down. Even better than tamoxifen, you're just like gone. And it goes out into the fat cells where it turns off aromatase. That enzyme I was explaining when we talked about being overweight. The fat cells have aromatase and that enzyme is churning out estrogens from precursors that you can't control because they're coming from your adrenal gland and you're not taking those out of you, right? And soy goes out there and shuts that enzyme down. So let's have a look now at how effectively it's shutting things down. Here we go. So the real deal on soy. We talked about receptors. And so if it's really doing what I said, you should see less breast cancer in those who have never had it. And indeed we do. Shanghai Women's Study, 73,000 Chinese women, almost 60% less breast cancer for in, in premenopausal women for high versus low consumers. And look at this. Some of these studies are not a lot. When you say high, and I advocate two to three servings a day, they're looking at 1.5 servings of soy a week, and they're calling that high versus low, which is obviously like less than half of a serving, but mostly none. American Asian women uh, with childhood intake of just one and a half servings of soy weekly, less by 58% for adult onset breast cancer. And then Chef AJ, look at this one. You were asking me, is, are BRCA carriers and other gene carriers truly at the mercy of their DNA breaks such that they really should consider surgery every time. You know, with some dramatic dietary and lifestyle change, we just don't have really strong data. So it's kind of, it feels risky if you're the one with the gene mutation. But if we could ever get that kind of a study, I have no doubt based on my deep dive into all the science of how lifestyle alters that micro environment, that we could get some radical control over the predisposition that genes cause. Um, so in that one study that I just flipped by, the Korean BRCA uh, carriers were, were followed and there was 43% less breast cancer developing in those who were high versus low soy consumers. Okay, great. So I should have soy to help reduce my risk of getting breast cancer. But, but if you have a breast cancer and it's estrogen driven, now don't you think it's kind of like a risky, bad idea to have soy? Uh, no, I don't. So here's the data on that. We've got 2,000 multi-ethnic survivors. This is nice to know because part of you might think, you know, well, those seem to be all Asian cultures. The reason is because they have more soy and we can actually do studies on it, um, more soy consumption, I should say. Um, but uh, maybe it was the green tea because Asians tend to drink more green tea. And I got a whole thing about that. Three cups of green tea a day. I just have to digress. Uh, cuts breast cancer 
in half. And if you have stage one breast cancer, it cuts recurrence by 57%, three cups a day, and three cups a day cuts stage two recurrence by 31%. Just a little throwing it out there. Squeeze some lemon in there. You bump the antioxidant EGCG component fivefold. All right, back to soy. So we've got 2,000 multi-ethnic survivors. They're on tamoxifen. They're followed for over six years, and there's a 60% drop in recurrence for high versus low soy consumers. So that's soy plus tamoxifen. Now we've got some who are not on tamoxifen. 6,200 multi-ethnic survivors followed for nine plus years, a 32% drop in mortality and death for ER positive cancers not on tamoxifen. So that's pretty fascinating because that is, um, that's a massive drop. And the drop on tamoxifen uh, approximates a 50% drop in recurrence but in mortality, it's also, ready for this, a 30, 32% drop. Like that's the big study on tamoxifen and death, uh, preventing death. So, I mean, I'm not saying don't take tamoxifen and I am not, I'm definitely not saying that, but wow, that's how powerful soy is. It's getting the same stats as the drug against placebo. All right, and here's something else fascinating. It's a lot more of an anti-carcinogen than it is merely an anti-estrogen. How do I know that? Soy drops mortality in estrogen negative cancers in half. That's powerful stuff because the anti-carcinogenic properties basically, it's not just anti-estrogenic as I just said, but it's anti-angiogenesis, anti-inflammatory, anti-growth hormone. So it's literally taking away all of those little components that cancer cells require in order to exist and proliferate. I'm not done with the proof. Can you see how embarrassed I was when I was uncovering all this? Now, in my small defense, which isn't much of one, all of these studies uh, started in 2009 and beyond. In other words, there were no human studies about soy consumption in breast cancer survivors prior to 2009, uh, but uh, I didn't see any of it till 2017. So again, sorry about that. All right, number, uh, this study, number, our next one is 5,000 breast cancer patients. Again, high versus low soy consumption, almost 30% less death and recurrence. Here's our biggest study to date, 9,500 breast cancer survivors. Again, look at this wimpy amount of consumption. It's no big deal. Like who can't drink a half a cup of soy milk and see what it is. It's soy milk. It's not like natto, which is a little on the hard side to stomach for most people. Um, the fermented soys actually can be a little more powerful even. So we're looking at tempeh, miso, natto, and um, tamari. But we're talking the easy stuff here, soy milk and tofu, some soybeans, um, I mean, soy nuts. So decreased recurrence by 25%. Pretty That's amazing. Am that is amazing. And so how much, again, people are asking, should we eat per, and should it be every day? And what about unfortunate people like me that are allergic to soy? Is there another food that might be almost as protective? Oh, yes. Oh, yes, yes. I have your, I have got your protection right here. You ready? It, it, okay, so to answer the first question, I want you to have two to three servings of soy a day, which is generally a serving is a half a cup of whatever. So tofu, soy milk, handful of soy nuts. Um, or like I was mentioning, the fermented foods like tempeh and miso. You ready? Let's talk seeds. Chia seeds, hemp seeds, black seeds, like what is the king of all seeds? 
when it comes to breast cancer and really when it comes to all health, far and away, you ready? The flaxseed, ground flaxseeds. I have two tablespoons every single day. I either put it in my oatmeal, which uh, I have, I have this amazing recipe. It's so complicated. You put half a cup of old fashioned oats and then you cover it with milk. You throw in two tablespoons of flax and some cinnamon and a bunch of frozen berries. And then you just put it away sitting on the counter for about an hour and then you eat it. There's no cooking. That ups the, um, the, the ante of that oatmeal like I don't know how fold, so X fold, but it is so much more powerful when you don't cook oatmeal because um, you get it as going straight down as a prebiotic for that microbiome. And I think its favorite food is fiber, of course. And you are just uh, getting so much more bang out of that little oatmeal bowl. Anyway, so there's my complicated recipe for you. Flax seeds, let's talk flax because this stuff is crazy cool. First of all, it's the most concentrated source of omega-3 fatty acids on the planet, but the fats thing is, um, is wonderful. What we're really into though, the breast cancer people, lignans. Okay, lignans are anti-estrogens and flax has a hundred times the content of these anti-estrogenic lignans than any other food on the planet. planet. Most other foods, some, some have more lignans than uh, than that. It's not a hundred times, but pretty much for all plants, plant to plant, seed to seed, hundred times. All right. So let's hear some proof about how awesome flax seeds are. One of my favorite studies looking at flax and breast cancer. Well, it has to be one of my favorites because there's only a couple few studies specifically on flax and cancer, breast cancer, but this one is going to blow your mind. Okay. We've got a bunch of women, 25 women, um, with breast cancer, their biopsy is analyzed, right? One of the things we look at when we look at a breast cancer under the microscope is called KI67. It's a proliferation rate. It answers the question, what percentage of these cells is actively dividing? One becoming two. Uh, the rest are going to be dormant in a phase of just hanging out on the couch, doing nothing. So obviously then the lower the percentage, the more favorable the cancer. The higher the percentage, the more aggressive, the more we're back to thinking, ooh, chemo can get at that guy. All right, so KI67 is analyzed, as is the HER2 growth factor expression on the tumor, um, as is the percentage of cells under the microscope that are actually in apoptosis. Favorite word to say. I, I just I think it's so fun to say, but what is it? It's programmed cell death. In other words, cancer cells kill themselves, suicide, cancer cell suicide, apoptosis. All right, everybody's got these things analyzed on their little core biopsy. Everybody gets one of two muffins. And muffins are junk food, right? Okay, so just think about that. We've got our normal, everything about our lives exactly the same, there's only one change. You're eating a muffin with some fake seeds in it and you've, you're eating a flaxseed muffin. Everybody's gonna have a muffin a day for five weeks and then they're gonna get their operation. On the excised specimen, we do it again. And what, oh what, did we behold simply because of five weeks of what amounted to two tablespoons worth of ground flax seeds a day ground by the way because uh if you eat it with the hull intact your body can't break it down you just poop it out okay so listen to this the division rate how quickly these cells are moving in five weeks went down by 34 percent it slowed the division proliferation of cancer cells by 34 percent and how much of that her two expression got downgraded 
71%. HER2 is a bad actor, by the way. HER2 cancers, always chemo. Almost always, right? Everything's your choice, first of all. And second of all, there are certain ones that might not need it, but that's how bad HER2 is. 71% drop in expression of that bad receptor. And then apoptosis, cancer cells killing themselves, up by 30% from flax. So for those of you who are in the 2% of people truly allergic to soy, uh, you can get your flax on. That is amazing. Thank you so much. So how, how important is lifestyle when it comes to a risk for breast cancer or any cancer, things like exercise, sleep, or food? Because, you know, I used to work at, well, volunteer, not work, because everything's shut down now at the hospital doing pet therapy. And I always like to go to the cancer center because you could have longer visits because the patients are there all day getting their infusions at the breast center and things like that. And when I was there around lunch, they would come with a cart to feed the patients and they had their choice of either a turkey sandwich with mayonnaise on white bread, or they could have ham and cheese. And then they got, they could have potato chips or Doritos or Cheetos. They had three choices of chips. Of course, every kind of soda diet or regular, and then a cookie for dessert. Right. And, um, and I, as a volunteer, I really not allowed to say anything, but they all said, Oh, my, my doctor said, you know, my oncologist said, it doesn't matter what I eat. I know it's a mad, it's maddening because not only is that the word on the street, but it's also, um, the same meal that your heart attack patient is getting right after they had their heart attack, they get bacon and eggs on a plate. So, um, diet is, incredibly important, but lifestyle is too. So let's talk a bit about lifestyle and then let's back it up because we do love our nutrition, right? So let's, um, let's talk about, let's talk all about lifestyle. Okay. Exercise. So this is powerful because some people are like, Oh, I want to exercise, but my knees, my back, my guess what? 17,000 postmenopausal women literally just walked briskly for 11 minutes a day and dropped their breast cancer rates by 18%. If you're able to put a little pep in your step though, say three to four hours a week of moderate to vigorous exercise, boom, 30 to 40% lower incidence of breast cancer versus sedentary women. What if you're like a real go-getter and you can exercise more than four hours a week at moderate to vigorous levels, you're going to have 57% lower incidence of breast cancer relative to sedentary women. So absolutely getting a move on matters. Another real big influence. So I am really proud to partner with PCRM, which is many of your viewers are probably also fans of Neil Barnard and PCRM. So PCRM and I have launched the Let's Beat Breast Cancer campaign. So go to letsbeatbreastcancer.org and sign up to take the pledge. The pledge is that you understand that to maximally reduce your risk of cancer or getting a recurrence, you would want to eat a whole food plant-based diet, exercise regularly, maintain an ideal body weight. And then number four, which I'm about to touch on, is to minimize or eliminate alcohol. So those are your big boulders on the scale. Think about life as you know, toward health or away from it, right? And we've got this scale. The boulders on that scale pushing you toward breast cancer are going to be eating meat, dairy, and eggs, being overweight or obese, not exercising and being sedentary, and drinking too much alcohol. Now, I mentioned at the top of this hour that hormone replacement therapy, emotional stress, environmental toxicities, these all also contribute. But guess what? They're more like pebbles. They're like grains of sand. So before you've 
overthink and fret like crazy about your deodorant or your underwire bra or some um, formaldehyde that might be coming off of the couch or the BPA in a water bottle. If you've got a boulder on there, who cares? Okay. I mean, to a certain extent, you want to care. I'm not trying to say that, but that's how important these big four are. So if we go back now to um, thinking about alcohol. Here we go. Um, great. We're going to we're going to understand what alcohol is doing inside your body. First of all, it increases estrogen levels. We've identified estrogen as a bad actor when elevated. It forms acetaldehyde, which is a carcinogen. Even if you just put it in your mouth and spit it out, you've already formed it and will swallow it down. It impairs immune function, which is certainly the big daddy problem of all cancers. Your immune system is responsible for identifying and eliminating cancer cells. And finally, and it turns out this might be, is probably the most important mechanism by which alcohol contributes, not just to breast cancer, but to all the cancers it causes. Um, and it inactivates folic acid or, or from your vitamins or folate from your leafy greens. And what that means is it's no longer getting methylated. It's methylfolate that runs around and fixes DNA, babysits it as it divides to make sure it behaves, or when it goes awry, it fixes it or throws it away, not unlike a gene like BRCA. So if you drink, you're interfering with DNA repair. All right, but wait, wait, doc, what about a drink a day decreases mortality from heart disease, right? Right? Maybe uh, there are studies that say that. There are also probably a lot more studies that are showing that alcohol is uh, unsafe in any level of consumption. So I'm certainly not advocating for those who uh, don't drink to start drinking for any reason whatsoever. It is definitely uh, cause, proven to be a causal factor in not just breast cancer, but cancers of the esophagus and stomach and colon and rectum and liver. So. Yeah, don't start drinking if you don't drink. But if you drink, or if you just wanna learn some stuff, let's talk about what is a drink. So first of all, it's 14 grams of alcohol in America. We supersize everything, it's 12 in Europe. Anyway, 12 ounces of beer equals five ounces of wine equals 1.5 ounces of hard liquor. Okay, so pick your poison, here we go. Relative to a teetotaler, a drink a day will increase breast cancer by 10%. Two drinks a day, 30%. Three drinks a day, 40%. So, um, you shouldn't be drinking that much. And actually with COVID, I was just doing the research on this between there, there was 28% increase in alcohol sales in the U S because of COVID. Um, so we are drinking more than ever. If you choose to drink, I have a couple of ideas for you. First is of all the alcohols, red wine does have some redeeming characteristics in particular, it has resveratrol which is a very potent antioxidant and anti-carcinogen into the to the point where it's the uh, it's being studied in human trials against different types of cancers as a standalone therapy, so or, or a in combination therapy with other things. But that's how powerful resveratrol is. You do not need to drink to get it. It is in the skin of red grapes, and it is the red grape that that has the seeds in it that you want to be chomping on to get your natural dose of resveratrol. This study showed that 48 ounces of red wine per day, not more and not less, led to a decrease in uh, cancer mortality versus teetotalers, actually. So maybe there's something redeeming there about red wine. 
The other weapon when you choose to drink would be to understand what's happening when I mentioned the, the folic acid. So MTHFR, which totally sounds like a bad word, but it stands for methyl tetrahydrofolate reductase. This enzyme gets inhibited when you drink. And 30 to 50% of people are already born with a suboptimal, subfunctional MTHFR. And it science shows that they have a 34% increase in breast cancer just because their MTHFR doesn't work that efficiently. Now you drink and you knock this puppy out and you're not making that methylfolate. Remember the DNA babysitter as it divides. Well, look at how powerful methylfolate or folate is. When you preload with enough folate, you're, you're, that enzyme will work a bit, drinking or not, and you're gonna suddenly get enough methylfolate to do this, nurse's health study. They pulled out just the drinkers in this study. Um, and all, among all those who were drinking one or more alcoholic drinks a day, those who had, well, I'll tell you, 300 micrograms of folate daily had 27% less breast cancer, doubling that to 600 micrograms a day of folate led to 89% less breast cancer versus those not consuming folate. So of all the mechanisms by which alcohol contributes to breast cancer, elevating estrogen, acetaldehyde, immune function, it really does seem to be that it's hitting this enzyme so hard that the, your methylfolate is allowing DNA mutations to propagate. So one antidote would then be to, well, of course, it's always to not drink at all, right? But I'm saying if you're going to choose to drink, you might want to supplement with at least 600 micrograms of folate uh, daily or when you drink. And we have a store online. I'm going to tell you a little bit more about it because I'm just really excited about all, how intelligent all the products are that are in there. And they really make the journey through life for all women a little a little sweeter, um, especially when it comes to menopause symptoms. So we'll, we'll chat about that. But right now I'm going to tell you about this um, Cosmo Companion. So what it is, is methylfolate, right? You're eating that thing you're not making with B6 and B12. These three things become glutathione in your body, which is the most potent antioxidant we've uncovered to date. And then it has a bunch of botanicals that support and protect your liver cells and support glucose metabolism uh, to limit those effects there. So uh, consider that if you're going to drink. And those are your big four we've now covered. Well, we haven't really covered the diet and nutrition to my satisfaction because there's so much to say. And I just love talking about it. Um, so there's a question from Elmo watching live about purslane. Cause when you were talking about how great flaxseed was, was it because of the omega-3 because of the ligaments or both? Because there's, have you ever heard of purslane? It's a very high source of omega-3 fatty acids. It's a weed that some people eat. It's very delicious by the way. Um, so thank you for educating me. No, I'm going to have to research purslane. Purslane, P-U-R-S-L-A-N-E. In okay. Spanish, it's called Vertilago. So you can get it at all the ethnic markets. So in LA, you could get it at Vallarta and you can also buy the seeds. And it, it, sometimes it grows in the cracks of sidewalks and it's a weed, but in, in, in Mexico, it's always in the cuisine. I, I teach at a place called Rancho La Puerta and it's it's something you eat. And, it's, and I heard it's, I'm not saying it's higher than the flaxseed, but for plants, I heard it's the highest source of omega-3 fatty acids. And it's quite delicious, especially raw. And I'm wondering if that would be beneficial. Uh, it would be as a source of omega-3s, but it's not going to decrease your breast cancer risk. Right. Good yeah. to know. Thanks. Yeah. So I just want to thank Sarah. 
for her super chat donation because that got her question bumped up to the top that I could really see it because it's highlighted. And she says that she had a marker placed about eight years ago. She's gained a lot of weight since then, but now the marker is just under the surface of her skin. Mm. Can I ask my doctor to remove the marker? Is that done? And she said it was put in because a benign mass was removed. Yeah, it's um, standard of care to put a little clip into a biopsy when it's done and it stays there forever. If thankfully what you find is benign, it obviously would come out if that's a cancer. You can definitely, we affectionately call it a clipectomy, like a lumpectomy takes out a breast lump. A clipectomy is every once in a while, I do have a patient whose clip migrates to the subcutaneous tissue. You can feel it, it bugs them, it hurts, or maybe they just feel like they feel it, even though it's deep in their breast and they swear they feel it. So we take it out. You can absolutely get get it removed, but it is an operation. Like you'll have to be sedated and have a little incision and have it removed, but it's safe and easy to do. Now you're in, you're in Beverly Hills. Can people actually come to you as a patient and do do any telemedicine? Cause there's more questions than we'll ever get to because. Yeah, absolutely. I am. I'm in Beverly Hills. Let me take a second to just chat a little bit about what, what I'm up to. Um, so this is the pink Lotus breast center and we are in Beverly Hills but I do do telemedicine, so we can um, always see you uh, on Zoom or something. So this is a state-of-the-art center that combines imaging with complementary therapies. With, I'm obviously a surgeon, but we do ultrasound, diagnostic ultrasound, biopsies, genetics. I see every patient myself and evaluate their breasts and give them advice about their best health strategy uh, when it comes to breast health. And I would love to see people there. We also, um, I realized, you know, I thought I was so proud of myself. I ran the, was one of the directors of the Cedar sinai Breast Center after I finished my fellowship there for eight years. And then in 2009, my husband and I opened up the Pink Lotus Breast Center. So we've been around now for 11 years. And I thought that was good. Like being a surgeon was enough. And I realized it really isn't because people, they really want to understand their options and their choices. And not just when it comes to breast health, but with all of their health and all of their life. And they want more than anything else to feel significant and appreciated and loved and supported. And it, it also involves breasts. So this important study, the Life After Cancer Epidemiology Study, LACE, looked at over 2,200 early stage women. They were followed an average of 10.8 years and look at this, those with low levels of social support from friends and family and lack of religious or social participation were 58% more likely to have died during the study period than those with high levels of support. People really need people. And that was the incentivization behind Power Up. So this is an entirely free community. I encourage everyone with or without a breast cancer diagnosis although there's a lot here that um, has to do with the breast cancer community to join Power Up. Cause like I said, it's free and it empowers women through community events, podcast blogs, crowdfunding and more. One of my favorite things about Power Up is breast buddies. So along the lines of the LACE study that I just explained, what happens here with breast buddies is a newly diagnosed woman, woman will go on and put in some stats like 40 years old mastectomy chemotherapy. Maybe that's your looming future, right? And then like match.com, all the women who have been there, done that, who are your age. So it pairs you age for age, stage for stage and treatment for treatment so that you can really like talk to like, right? Because there's 
danger in a stage zero in situ cancer patient talking to someone who's stage three. Their experiences were wildly different and the advice is going to create fear instead of assurance and confidence in the stage zero woman. So in other words, Breast Buddies is a safe haven where, you know, not everybody has a BFF, not everybody likes their family. And uh, according to that lay study, we create some social connections and support systems and our survival rates go up. So everyone can have a breast buddy, even if they don't have a family that they like. <laughs> Crowd cause is kind of like GoFundMe, but cheaper. Breastlist is like Craigslist, where you buy, sell, trade, or give away your gently used scarves and hats and wigs. I mean, some people plunk down like five grand for a wig and um, then they never want to see it again, but they don't know what to do with it. So that's what you can do. Restless. Pink events is where you can list whatever you're up to. Like maybe you're having a ta-ta to the ta-ta's party. And you just want everybody to know, or maybe you're having a 5k or you're going to one. You want, of course, COVID aside, but um, you want to just post an event and you hope people join. Breast groups is just like Facebook has the basic functionality. So you go in there and you post like a, your own picture and profile and you can be like, yeah, I finished your Septin 17 today. And your friends can follow you and give you a thumbs up. You can go into private chat rooms. Um, you can have a private message or you can do like start a discussion thread like who hates tamoxifen? How are you dealing with it? So that's all um, available. And then Cancer Kicking is um, filled with my Cancer Kicking Powwow, my, my podcast. It has the Cancer Kicking Kitchen, which is coming soon, but there's some recipes in there, like that complicated oatmeal. And um, my Cancer Kicking Summit, which I'd like everybody to know about. And please consider coming. This is going to just transform you. Uh, if you come in person, it's next October. All predictions say it's going to be A-OK. -okay. So next October, we're here at the Oceanfront Terranea Resort in Palos Verdes, California unbelievable getaway. Um, I think just being there will do half my work for me because it's so just emancipating and um, really makes you breathe in and breathe out and take a moment to be all about you, which is what you need. I'm sorry. So there's that. And then there's the virtual summit, which is coming up in April. So please consider joining um, for one or both events. They're going to be different. And uh, what are we doing here? So it's a way more than diet and nutrition, although that is a big part of it, obviously, if to live your healthiest life. But what we're doing is we're gonna root around in that soil of your world. We're gonna get rid of all the weeds and the glyphosate and all the things that are choking you and keeping you down. And then we're gonna plant 10 seeds into that newly renovated soil so that you can bloom and grow into the most bountiful, fruitful existence in this orchard of your life. So certainly one tree is going to be food and nutrition, but there are nine others along the lines of thinking and mindset, uh, meditation, actually not eating. We're going to jump into fasting and all the benefits therein. So please join me, uh, paylotus.com forward slash summit to read more or to register. Then I wanted to tell you about something else I'm up to, which is our store. So this is the leading online women's health store for all things before, during, and after a breast cancer diagnosis. So it has a lot more to do with um, maintaining optimal health, but it's all vetted. We did all the vetting and science for you in these products. And so I'll just introduce you to a few of them. So Menopause Miracle is far and away the most amazing thing that we've identified. For 17 years, I was scouring the earth looking for something that was not estrogenic, but that actually did the job. Not just for hot flashes, it turns out. This is, it earns its name. The reviews will show you um, that 
in these three randomized controlled trials against placebo, you uh, almost all the women had resolution of not just hot flashes, but all 12 major menopause symptoms. So hot flashes, night sweats, vaginal dryness, decreased libido, foggy mentation, thinning hair, itchy skin, insomnia, on and on. So menopause miracle really is a miracle. Uh, along with menopause and along with cancer treatments comes uh, thinning hair. So we've got this um, also in uh, an RCT, randomized controlled trial from France, we get our swell hair um, that thickens hair. There's a, this is the most intelligently formulated multivitamin I've ever seen. And I can say that because my nutraceutical guru did it, not me, I'm not bragging, but it is brilliant. And it's brilliant. Everything we do sell is vegan. Saffrony is, as it sounds, made from saffron, but it's of a dose that is specifically for mood support. It even helps ADHD in children. Again, another randomized controlled trial for this one. Um, so just really thought, well thought out products. If you are going through a diagnosis, we've also got some things specific to cancer treatment like this shower shirt that can hold your drain and uh, keep you dry while you shower off the rest of you. Please, we don't want you smelling. And this is our newcomer on the block. This is a pure aloe vera plant with botanicals that help for during radiation for, to help decrease blistering, redness and pain during uh, breast radiation. So visit the store. I'm sure there's something there that will interest you. I was gonna move on and just give you some basic stats to wrap our mind around how pervasive breast cancer is as a so-called epidemic. And then um, maybe we wanna dive more into the food aspects. So I just think, well, it transformed my life to write my book. So my book called Breast the Owner's Manual, uh, I did, I knew some stuff. I knew like the three cups of green tea, like pearls. I had pearls here and there. And obviously I didn't know what I was talking about with soy. So when I went to the science, that's when my life transformed. So I'd like to kind of share that with you and my thought process from more of a scientific perspective on why being whole food plant-based is really the only choice if your plan is to have the healthiest life possible. So Pop quiz, you and all of your loved ones will most likely die from this disease. What is it? Ding, ding, ding. I know all of you are smarty pants and you got that right. So yes, you are 26 times more likely to have heart disease and seven times more likely to die from it than you are to get breast cancer. Nevertheless, this is still breast cancer, a very pervasive problem. Behind skin, breast is the number one cancer that women will get in their lifetimes. And still annually, almost 42,000 women are predicted to die this year from breast cancer. So we have a long ways to go in terms of eradicating it. There are 3.8 million breast cancer thrivers in the U.S. that either have a diagnosis or have, have it in their past. Men get breast cancer. Um, okay, so when you're a little tiny fetus in your mom's womb, for the first six weeks, we are all the greater sex. It turns out we're all born, not born, we're all conceived as tiny little girls. Um, and then around six weeks in that womb, testosterone comes out and ruins it all. Just kidding, men, but it does come out around six weeks and the nipples and the breast bud have already been formed in that womb. So hence men do have breasts and they do in those nipples just stick around and out their whole lives. And men usually don't understand that little fact. So they'll be prone to ignoring a lump or a pain in their breast, not thinking it could possibly be cancer. And yet about 2,600 men get breast cancer every year and 500 die in the US. The death rate, speaking of dying, goes down every year about 2.2% and that's owing to earlier detection and better treatments. Since 98, we've been on a 
nice decline there. Hence, there are a lot more survivors, but there's still just too much cancer going on in the first place. The five-year survival for node negative cancer is 99%. And for those of you wondering, I'd like to say, doctors always talk in five-year survival, maybe 10-year and so on, but they generally always focus on the five-year. And the reason is, not that you're gonna die year six and we don't want you to know <laughs> that the stats go down, they don't. The reason is you're a newly diagnosed woman. You wanna know what the chances are that you're gonna be alive in five years. So I need to talk about the most recent therapies, the ones that you will be receiving and how likely that is to work. Because if you do like, a 25 year survival, that may sound dismal because 25 years ago, we didn't even have Herceptin for HER2 cancers and that was a highly fatal subtype, which is no longer highly fatal, you see? So that's why we talk in five year survival. 95% of all breast cancer happens in women who are over 40 years old, which is an interesting thing to think about the converse. So 5% is under 40. I hear all the time, gee, doesn't it seem like it's, breast cancer is just so rampant these days, especially in young people? and I get the, I get why people think that, but um, no, actually, no. It's been under 5% under the age of 40 uh, since 1985. And the median age of breast cancer is 62. So median is half at or above and half below 62 years old. This is the median age of breast cancer. And finally, the incidence, it's true it is getting more common, but it's super slow. It's 0.3% per year. Nothing that you would actually probably notice in your computer of a mind. Um, and it hasn't risen in those under 50. The, oh, that slow rise of 0.3% has been since 2012. The 0.3%, the rise has been since 04, and the 0.3% is 2012. So here's the reason I think that everybody thinks it's so much more common is that it's no longer taboo to be discussing breast cancer treatments and individual journeys, be it on television or in Facebook, suddenly you're finding out that a friend's daughter's 22 year old friend has breast cancer. And that you never would have known about that girl, even maybe 10 years, certainly not 15 years ago. And that is what is making us think it's more common. Now, I wanted to just go, there are a number of risk factors for breast cancer beyond these big three that actually contribute but I wanted to just explain the first big three so that you can, again, be incentivized to take better control of what you can control, knowing that you have these risks that you cannot control. We actually already did number three, which would be family history and or an inherited gene mutation. But the two bigger risks are being female. Makes sense. One in eight women gets breast cancer, whereas 1.3 in 100,000 men gets cancer. Nothing you can do about being an XX and why would you want to? So being female, that's a big risk. Age is the other risk. And I want to take a minute to kind of bust what a lot of people think. So we know one in eight gets breast cancer. That's normal, like across the population, right? That would translate, um, technically it becomes 12.8%. Those are the real stats. So 12.8% of all women will get breast cancer currently. That must make you think we're all going to have it by Christmas, right? Like that's a high, it's not, but you don't wake up every morning with 12.8% risk. It is stretched out and stratified by decade of life to change as we age. So let's be exact about it. If you're currently in your 20s, the chances of getting breast cancer by age 30, one in 1,479. That's not one in eight, you see? And then as you age, it changes. So now if you're 30, by age 40, the chances are one in 209. From 40 to 50, one in 65. 
From 50 to 60, one in 42. From 60 to 70, one in 28. From 70 to 80, ding, ding, ding. This is the highest decade of life during which you are at risk for breast cancer. One in 25, 70-somethings will get breast cancer. That's 4% of them. And 80 to 90, your risk is one in 33. We whole food plant-based eaters are gonna all be centenarians. So why stop at 80? But the stats always do. So that is a little um, review of things that you can't control. Everybody's asking about broccoli sprouts. <laughs> oh, I love broccoli sprouts. I love it. I love it. Okay. Let's talk broccoli then. So, um, uh, okay. If you think about the whole kingdom of cruciferous vegetables, far and away more than any other food, it contains the power to eliminate cells, cancer cells from your body. The cruciferous kingdom, right? So I'll get to broccoli and sprouts. Don't you worry. But Broccoli, cauliflower, kale, arugula, collard greens, um, Brussels sprouts, you know, that whole kingdom of cruciferous veggies literally can not, it reduces breast cancer, but why and how? It's decreasing inflammation, it's neutralizing carcinogens, the phytonutrients, the plant-based nutrients and chemicals in this whole kingdom of leafy greens uh, can slow cancer growth. It induces apoptosis, right? Cancer cell suicide, limits free radical damage, to the tune of the following. So there's one study that looked at 52,000 African-American women and followed them for 12 years. Having six servings a week, uh, I mean, you know, you should be having five plus servings a day, right, of veggies and make one of them greens. But six servings a week of cruciferous vegetables cut breast cancer by 41% among premenopausal women. And then one of my other... Um, favorite studies is the wheel study women's healthy eating and living study and this followed 3080 women uh, who already had breast cancer and their diagnosis was two years prior for those who consumed high versus low levels of cruciferous vegetables there was a 52 percent drop in recurrence just from the veggies but in this kingdom we must have a king and some of you out there apparently know that the crown goes to bum, 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 broccoli sprouts and broccoli. I mean, sprouts literally have 100 times the sulforaphane content of broccoli. Um, so both are awesome, but sprouts uh, even take the cake a little further. So here's the, here's what broccoli's doing. All these cruciferous veggies have isothiocyanates, but broccoli, when you chew, you break down the cell wall and you release an enzyme called myrosinase that transforms the isothiocyanate to this powerhouse called sulforaphane. Sulforaphane seeks out and destroys cancer cells. And I'm gonna prove that point with a study in a second. But hold up, you have to eat that broccoli raw or lightly steamed. Otherwise you destroy the enzyme and you don't get the superhero sulforaphane. So here's a couple of tricks for you if you're like me and your favorite food on planet earth is grilled broccoli. Um, you can cook your broccoli however you wanted it, and then just chop up some raw broccoli and sprinkle it in, and you're basically sprinkling myrosinase back into it. So you're getting all the bang out of your broccoli as possible. Another thing that has myrosinase that would be delicious with your veggies is just a pinch, and it's only a pinch of mustard seed powder, and actually whole grain mustard itself also has the myrosinase. So tips and tricks for getting uh, that sulforaphane to work for you. Why do you want it to work for you so badly? 
So you may have heard of stem cells. These are kind of kind of new and sexy in the whole cancer world because when I was in med school, I was told, taught, you are born with a finite number of stem cells and uh, you use them and that's that. So what is a stem cell? Stem cells are incredible. They can become anything you need them to be in your body. They're pluripotent, all powerful. And it, basically they just hang out in your body and they wait. They wait for like, ooh, UV ray, damage that skin cell. I'm going to become a perfect skin cell. Get rid of that one. And I'm going to be perfect, unblemished, and immortal because it can literally, these stem cells, they can migrate, they colonize, they proliferate, right? They can self-renew and they have immortality. Oh no. What happens then if it changes such that now it's an immortal cancer cell? That would be a cancer stem cell. What could possibly kill that? Well, we hope that chemo does, but it doesn't always, hence recurrences happen. Okay, so now this science is cruel, but this is so interesting. Mice, breast cancer tumors grafted onto the mice, both estrogen driven and the more difficult to cure estrogen negative cancers, both types grafted into the mice with stem cells, breast cancer stem cells. Inject the mice with sulforaphane and over a matter of weeks, we see the cancer stem cell going from initial size, down, 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 gone. Broccoli, broccoli, the best antidote to cancer. So um, that, that's my answer to what about broccoli sprouts? What, a, what about them? Put them on your salad, put them on your sandwich, just eat them by the handful. There you go. I've never seen anybody so passionate about broccoli sprouts. <laughs> Uh, that is great. Well, I, I, I want to respect your time. There's a million questions. You can always come back, but people always want to know about specific foods like oil. They're asking chocolate, things like that. Mm -hmm. So um, oil, this took me a while to research. I wasn't so sure why it was so bad, but uh, just ask Dr. Esten <laughs> wax eloquently about being anti-oil because it injures the vascular endothelium. So these are the cells that line your blood vessels and oil will cause your vessels to constrict. So there's less blood flow getting to every organ of your body and it's very inflammatory. So inflammation basically is what's setting the stage for cancer. And particularly the trans fats, um, but then also your, sorry about, uh, sorry, your saturated fats, but even your poly, you've got the monounsaturated and polyunsaturated, really the only healthy one is the monounsaturated. And even that in excess is going to set up inflammation in your body. Sorry. If I close the door, I will melt like frosty. It is so hot here today. Sorry. Um, so here's the thing. We get, we have omega-3 fatty. That is loud. Sorry. We have omega-3 fatty acids, but we consume without even realizing it so much omega-6, which is also quote unquote healthy. But the ratio that we in a perfect world would have is one to one, omega-3 to omega-6. And generally, those who are very health conscious about their oils are going to still get four to one, six to, to um, three. And the average American is 16 or 18 to one. Okay, six is inflammatory. Three is not. But the problem is your enzymes get overwhelmed by how much omega-6 is going on that you never really 
use the omega-3 to your advantage. So that's the problem with oil. And so you just use it sparingly or, or not at all if you have heart disease for sure or high blood pressure, because it's, it's um, definitely having a deleterious effect on your arteries. When it comes to chocolate, I actually think cacao is one of the 10 breast superfoods. So it's packed with flavonoids and procyanidins. And now be careful what you're doing though, because cacao powder, not the Dutch processed, no. Uh, but you can add it to like berry smoothies or something to satisfy a sweet juice or just, or just consume 1.5 ounces a day of 70% or more cacao solid dark chocolate gets a total thumbs up. It, the antioxidants are actually anti-cancer and it delivers more of those antioxidants than it does cocoa fat and sugar. So it's a subset of the chocolates, but go for it. It's just interesting because the people I know that have had lumps in their breasts that weren't cancerous, they've they were told by their doctor not to have any caffeine or any chocolate. Oh, they're talking about, but the chocolate is because of caffeine. They're, it's caffeine and caffeine. And it is true that caffeine can um, cause breast cysts and pain and lumps, but they're all benign. So first of all, that being said, so coffee isn't bad for your breast. So if you love your uh, vegan latte, go for it. It's, it's gonna be fine. And actually it turns out that the flavonoids in coffee, it, um, it's a lot, but five cups a day decreases breast cancer by like, uh, it's 57%. Even in bracket carriers, there's another little tidbit about the BRCA mutation in who knew? Um, something, uh, something in coffee is uh, decreasing breast cancer. So it's not bad to have it, but if your breasts hurt, then it's just gonna make them painful. Right, this is amazing. I've been posting the whole time the links to your store, to your summit. And if you wanna come back before the summit, we'll you know, tell people about it again. Oh, you're great. just, you're incredible. Thank you so much for doing this. Of course. My pleasure. People just are, are just loving you. Thank you so much, Dr. Funk. And thank you guys so much for watching another episode of Chef AJ Live. Please come back tomorrow when I'll have Chef Carol Levy doing a Moroccan tangine and an apple tart all for Rosh Hashanah. And if you celebrate, happy, healthy new year to all of you. You're amazing, Dr. Funk. Thank you so much. Thanks, Chef AJ. Take care.